You are tuning in to Missouri NEA Connects, a podcast to focus on all things Missouri education, from policy to practice, so that each of us can unite, inspire, and lead from where we are. We're happy you're here. What's been going on? What happened since April, since we talked to you in April? Well, so, you know, the the uh, time marches on, and uh, under our Constitution, they run out of time. And so the session's over. It ended last Friday. I think, obviously, they were really kind of behind on the whole budget situation. And so that occupied a lot of attention. And that kind of will matter uh, when we get to what happened after that. So, but they did manage to get a budget passed for next year for all of the bills, Mm -hmm. K-12, higher ed, all the other stuff, all the other programs. They got it done with a little bit of time to spare on the very last day. Mm -hmm. Um, There actually was some potential because there was lots of, of things being held hostage, and that's also something we'll a theme will return to, mm-hmm. but there was controversy over um, a landfill potential landfill project in the Kansas city area that kept popping up and somebody wanted progress on their bill to affect that. And then they would take time. So there's a whole lot of people on, getting up on the Senate floor and just kind of blocking whatever else was going on because they had something else they were paying attention to. But they did get the budget done, uh, and that was May 5th was the budget deadline because that's always the Friday one week before the actual session ends. And so the actual session end was Friday the 12th. So they did get the budget done, uh, and then they basically just had one week left to wrap up all the loose ends, and most of the ends were still loose at that point. Uh, so because of the, the delaying tactics and the budget stuff, um, that really kind of meant that there had been kind of like this, um, expected talk on the Senate floor about education topics because the house had sent over the open enrollment bill. And that was a top priority for Brad Pollitt, who chairs house education committee. The Senate had, way back in February, if you recall, they had passed Senate Bill 4, Andrew Koenig's bill, that had like parent information access, restrictions on curriculum, plus a bunch of other stuff. And those two pieces had been articulated by the Senate uh, majority party as a big priority. They wanted to move that bill, which they had done. So they hadn't really done much on education for a couple of months. But they really couldn't uh, get that bill out during that last week or so with the budget stuff going on. And that, that also takes a lot of time because the budget, the, sorry, the, the Appropriations Committee, um, the week before, the Senate Appropriations Committee is almost half the Senate. So it's hard for them if they're busy and they have long hours. That was the week before the budget was finished. They really can't do as much in floor debate on the Senate side because they don't have that many senators available. So that meant 
that they had to try to figure out, can we do something on an education bill in that last week of session? And, you know, there was like a lot of kind of backdoor uh, wrangling. Uh, Senator Koenig had a couple bills to choose from, and he picked, <laughs> oddly enough, House Bill 827, Phil Christofanelli, which was the full-time virtual uh, cleanup bill that we had helped uh, prepare uh, based upon the stuff we had worked on last session to kind of create a, a better structure for full-time virtual kids. And that got passed into law along with the charter funding piece towards the end of last session. So oddly enough, that bill is kind of hanging out there on the calendar along with House Bill 253, which was Brad Pollitt's open enrollment bill. And so on like Monday and Tuesday, kept, we kept expecting, actually it was even in the week before when they were finishing up the budget, there kept being this anticipation each day, maybe they'll go to an education bill. And they never really did um, when it was still kind of like something might big might happen. All day on Tuesday, there was lots of discussion still. And Senator Koenig had been trying to basically, you know, put together a number of pieces and see if he could get enough people in favor that he could get 18 votes uh, for some package of stuff. Although, since it was such a big bunch of stuff, trying to do that on the last week of session, it's not just a matter of getting knowing that you may have 18 votes, it's a matter of getting to a vote because uh -huh. if there's stuff in there that somebody doesn't like, and it's the last week of session, somebody doesn't have to talk too long before it's impractical for the floor leader to keep it on the floor. And you have, cause you've mm -hmm. got, you know, there's like dozens of, you know, like you've got Senate bills that have been acted on by the house that are coming back over and somebody wants to take up either send their bill to conference or try to take it up and pass it. There's all those competing interests. Um, so anyway, they got to the end on Tuesday. And again, this was all, most of the week last week. Somebody was basically talking and slowing things down on the Senate side, sending a message that they had something else they wanted. On Tuesday, it was mostly Mike Moon. He had sponsored the other big thing that, that the Senate had done, which was the Senate Bill 49, which got rid of, it's a moratorium on gender-affirming care for minors. So that had passed a while ago through the Senate, and he was basically holding up Senate activity uh, to pressure the House to take up and pass the, that bill, that Senate Bill 49, as the Senate had passed it so that it would be agreed to and done. And so he basically spent most of Tuesday talking so that the Senate couldn't do anything else and anything else included taking up anything to do with House Bill 827 or a big substitute that had open enrollment and ESA style tax credit vouchers and formula stuff and all kinds of other stuff. And eventually Senator, Senator Koenig kind of saw the writing on the wall that he was having a hard time getting agreement he was having a hard time getting floor time, and he basically just, you know, kind of on a Tuesday evening when they quit, he basically decided, I've given up. And so they, and I got communication from folks in the Senate that they were just going to try to take up and pass the bill that had come over, which is just that full time virtual thing. Mm. 
And so when he finally got some floor time, I think this was on Wednesday, that was the expectation, but then that got blocked. Uh, Mm -hmm. Senator Lincoln Huff was pointing out, hey, you know, you were trying to negotiate a bill that had stuff to do with school finance and the formula, and you didn't include the appropriations chair in those conversations, only other people. It's like, that's not the way that needs to happen. And so he basically said, so because you weren't really, you know, involving me in that discussion, yeah. I'm, I'm going to hold up the other underlying piece. So 827 didn't pass either, along with any of the big stuff. So, yeah. And then it continued to be, I, I, I am, I'm pondering how to write my little end of session article. And what I'm thinking about is just pointing out that anything that was a piece of legislation that somebody thought was important, it was going to be somebody else's hostage. That's mm. kind of how this last bit has worked. You know, it's like, what does statewide mechanical contracting licensing and initiative petition have in common? Nothing more than that. You know, they were, they were different people's priorities, right? So, Whoa. yeah. So it, it started to become this situation where there were so many different things being held up that they just had a hard time getting to anything. And, you know, as, as I said, most of the actual floor time of the Senate this last week of session was mostly somebody just taking time. When you when you step back and you look at what actually passed, the answer is not very much. Yeah. Right. So yeah. there's nothing on open enrollment. There's nothing on uh, tax credit vouchers. There's nothing on revisions to the formula. There's nothing on changes to minimum teacher salary. There's mm-hmm. nothing on initiative petition. There's nothing on the whole. Parents' Bill of Rights, parent information, Mm -hmm. curriculum restrictions, honesty in education, none of that stuff passed. Really, the the few things I can point to, one thing I can point to is we got some good things passed, little things in school retirement. Mm -hmm. If you were following that, that stuff had been pretty well accepted, Um, we had somebody, you know, I think it was primarily the influence of Senator Bob Onder, who was in the Senate for a number for, for the full eight years. He was basically, and he kind of chaired the relevant committee on the Senate side. He just kind of held up that kind of stuff for his whole term. But when he got termed out, there really wasn't anybody who had it on their agenda to block that. And, you know, when, so when the bills came to the House committee uh, and to the Senate committee, there really was no opposition testimony and there was nobody who really was like, I'm going to make a purpose of trying to stop this. So it ended up on, I don't know, maybe a half dozen bills, uh, maybe more and enacted um, and sent to the governor's desk on several. So you've got finally bringing back the 2.55% factor for PSRS retirees um, at 32 or more years of service. It had been in effect a while ago at 31 plus. Now it's 32 plus. And then there was a change to what we call the bus driver provision, which bumps up if you're a PSRS retiree and you come back and do a non-teaching thing. Yeah. So a peers covered thing. Then right now you can earn 15,000 per year and still keep your PSRS monthly pension. This bumps it up 
to 133%, so four-thirds, of the Social Security uh, earnings restriction up until you retire from Social Security, which is, that number itself is in the 22,000 and something, and that, that's, that number gets adjusted each year for inflation. So I think the 133% number is, is significant. You know, it's a third higher than that. It's more like 28 or something. And so that's going to be in place for five years. Then it kicks back down to 100% of the Social Security limit. So that's a higher earnings amount. And our folks should remember that under the law, you can be a PSRS retiree. You can collect your monthly pension. You can work no more than 50% slash 550 hours in a PSRS, a teacher-covered position. And separately from that, you can work as a non-certified position. All three of those things can be done simultaneously as long as you don't, don't go over either of those two, the PSRS or peers working restriction. And there's a couple other little bits. Uh, Representative Kathy Steinhoff from Columbia got onto a couple of bills and into law, or at least to the governor's desk, an amendment on behalf of some speech implementers, the, the state board had changed something about their status, and it was going to affect their uh, retirement towards the back end of their careers. And so she just put on an amendment saying, basically, if you have been in a PSRS-covered position and they kind of relabeled you um, and your position to move from the PSRS to the non-PSRS uh, category, we're just going to pretend like you're that way. If you know new people coming in, will will start off in peers, but this just keeps those folks from having to switch from one system to the other, which is financially it's kind of a hardship. And so, and that's a fairly small group of uh, of folks. It's like twenty uh, employees who are affected. The other retirement piece is that we extended. So right now, if you if there's a critical shortage. A person who is PSRS retiree can come back full-time for two years, and we bumped that up to four years. And we also increased the number of folks. So it's now the greater, it used to be five, now it's greater of five or one percent of your total staff. Um, so it, there's a... I think you can kind of see a theme here that at least there is some recognition that the retirement system can be a little part of how do we encourage uh, more options that would encourage a few more retirees to either stay in or come back into, into school um, to address recruitment. So there weren't a lot of things passed. The other thing, another good thing we got passed was the change. It's a little thing, but right now, Schools are uh, required to have so they what they do is they use what's called wrap back. So you have to have a background check to be a school employee, basically, and then and then there's a process to, for like if you if you were to commit a serious offense, there's a there's a system that they use that kind of gives them an update so that they uh, know about it during the course of your yearly employment. And the law was written in such a way that after six years, you had to go back and pay money and get a back fingerprint background check. And so 
Ron Copeland from the House had House Bill 669, and he he spread that, amended that onto, again, at least half a dozen bills, several of which made it to the governor's desk to get rid of the, you know, you having to re-fingerprint thing. That was, there was no policy reason. I mean, it's not like, you know, teachers are in the mob and they're like altering their fingerprints. And they're like burning their fingerprints. Yeah. No, <laughs> n- nobody does that. So that was purely just done because like, financially to make the system go, they had to have revenue coming from somewhere. And I guess maybe they didn't have enough GR coming in so that they had to have the, the uh, fingerprint, fingerprint background check fees for helping fund that. They, at the same time, got some updates and increases to their records fees. So there's going to be some revenue to kind of compensate for that. So... Uh, also, schools are now reminded that they can o- offer an optional course in the Bible. That was agreed to. Um, and then there are a couple of tax changes, uh, one of which is a little, not massively concerning, but a little concerning. It's uh, Senate Bill 190, and it actually has two interesting pieces. One of them is that, so we have a, a provision in law that already provides for in many cases, deductibility of retirement income, which includes PSRS. And the change they made there was to remove any income limitations on that deduction for all those types of pension income. The other thing they did, which will have a little bit of impact on some uh, local school funds over time, is a county is... a authorized under this law to vote to grant a homestead property tax credit. So the idea being you're a person who is Social Security eligible and a homeowner. So it's typically going to be somebody in the 60s and older category, lives in in the district and owns their primary residence. And then if they see what would be increases in their homestead property tax, then the county ballot issue is going to say, basically the county can say, we're going to basically, you might say, forgive that. It's like a credit. Um, And so you would just continue to pay the amount that you were paying when you first became eligible, like say reach social security eligibility. So that will have the tendency to, you know, for, for a set of taxpayers, it's going to be kind of, topping their tax liability. So it's like a, a kind of an incremental impact. Um, and that, obviously that would grow slightly over time for those taxpayers until they are no longer, you know, if they sell the house or, or whatever and they're no longer the owner, then it would probably just go back to being paid at, at the appropriate amount to the, all the county entities. I will point out, it's not 100% clear that a county can properly be authorized to make this kind of decision to forego revenues for other entities. So that'll be interesting to see if there's any, there might, I don't know, but it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility that there might be some kind of uh, legal questions about that. So there's not, there's actually not a whole lot else that, that was passed into law. Any everything that has to do with 
transgender individuals, like the athletics. That stuff the, passed. Yeah. So there's, yeah. So, so Senate Bill 39 was the one that compa- kind of a companion piece. The Senate passed them together. The House passed them together. That's the one. Uh, and it's almost kind of <laughs> by the fact that they passed Senate Bill 49, which uh, puts a four-year moratorium on gender-affirming care, that kind of uh, makes it hard to see a situation where any kid could actually have complied with the Misha policy since they wouldn't be able to be going through, you know, and, and use, having the procedure to, to um, reduce blood testosterone levels. Yeah. But uh, mm. so that's also and that that's the same approach they took on the the gender affirming care, which is that it's a four year moratorium. Um, so anyway, if you're if you were identified as female at birth, then you are not allowed. Sorry. And if identified as male at birth, you are not allowed to participate as a trans female athlete in any middle or high school or collegiate athletics in a competitive context as in the female category. And that's for public and private middle schools, high schools, and colleges. And again, that's a four-year moratorium. So they'll have to... And that just means that they have to revisit They'll have to come back and take up the issue in four years. And I, I will say, a lot is happening in that space. If you look at international, national sport organizations, their policies are, they're starting to see a lot more participation or at least enough participation of intersex athletes and trans athletes to feel the need to address this in the way that they feel best addresses the competing interests of fairness, Mm -hmm. safety, and inclusion. So in four years, there might be a nationally acknowledged framework from which to go it's quite possible yeah it's quite possible that that the landscape both at the national and the international level would look different there's a lot there there's a lot there and it's more complicated when you you know you're looking down in like the middle school level where the priority is not so much about in most of the time is not as much about competition whereas you know if you're talking about elite international athletes that's all it's about it's nothing it's nothing but a competitive event in middle school and in high school, athletics and other activities, they serve an ed- educational purpose. I mean, if you look at the mission statement of Misha, it's not just about competition. It's, a, you know, it's about helping kids grow and develop and learn from participation activities. Last month, you said your word was doubt. No, time. Time. Because there wasn't a lot left. Um, what would be your one word for the last month? Hmm. I had a couple candidates since I started just thinking about it. Uh, really the theme is just kind of, you know, people blocking the work to hold things hostage. So I keep thinking in terms of like ESSER funds. Yeah. Those are going to go away. Correct. It looks like. It looks like we've had a large influx of funds, which we have, into education in the state of Missouri. However, that was like a one-shot relief money from the federal government. Yep. And I just keep hearing things about tax cuts. So in my mind, I'm doing very basic uh, addition, subtraction math. And I'm like, okay, I hear like I get this one-time money 
add that to education, but then, oh, we're going to take away these tax cuts and then that the ESSER funds are going to run out. What are we going to have any money left for education? Like, what does that look like? What happens in the future? Well, for sure, I think we're already expecting, I think, I think people think at least for a number of years, where we're at this year is kind of a high water mark in terms of general revenue. Yeah. And so that's the main thing you want to look at, because as you point out, those other one-time things like the federal funds, they don't really factor into the long-term picture. That's kind of, they're here while they're here, they're used for what they're used for. But when you look, you know, once that stuff's gone, you're, you're primarily looking at where do our state funds through the general revenue stand? And then where do things stand in terms of changes or impacts on local property revenues? You should be, you should be concerned. Yeah, I think it's fair. I think all of us are somewhat concerned. I don't expect, you know, everything to be massively underfunded within a year's time, but we do see, expect to see they're going to have to get out of the mode of feeling like they can just kind of do what they want. Right. You know, like th this in the budget process this time, you know, came over from the House and it wasn't horrible uh, in terms of numbers. We didn't like their anti-DEI language thrown everywhere without any understanding what they were talking about. You know, it wasn't bad on numbers. And then it got even better when it came through the Senate committee. Okay. So the numbers are pretty good for the, you know, this is going to be probably the biggest yearly budget you'll see in your lifetime, or at least for a while. Be do bear in mind one thing right now, until they change it, the school formula has kind of leveled off. And so it's not pressuring them. Um, it's always a challenge to get that tuned right to where it doesn't grow so fast that it just becomes impossible to fund. They throw up their hands and they ignore it. Or it grows so little that it's not keeping, it's not even keeping pace with inflation. So that's, unfortunately, we're in that category. Um, the only plus side is it does mean that they've been able to fund that. And then in the, in the last couple of years, they've started to develop again, the habit of funding transportation, which they had neglected. When they were having a hard time funding the formula, they would neglect funding for transportation. And transportation funding is important. And it's money that, you know, I mean, basically, it comes designated as for transportation, but it just is money that is contributed and can be used for general operational purposes. So if you don't get it for the purpose of transportation, you still have to comply with the law on busing kids, that affects what you can put into salaries. So if you get the money for transportation, you don't have to move salary money over there. If you think about all of the folks you work with up at the Capitol, who is your freshman of the year for education? Ooh, can I pick one per chamber? Okay. <laughs> because that makes it a little easier. Um, I would say on the House side, it's easier because I'd say it's unambiguously Kathy Steinhoff from Columbia. So she has uh, emerged as somebody who can get up on the floor or work in, she's on the budget committee, which you know, is a super important committee, super important committee. And you learn a lot about government in the process because you're so, you learn about every program, but what, what, what she has demonstrated is the ability to get along with people, to understand people, and to be able to 
to work effectively with people. Uh, and she can deal with complicated issues. Um, and so I would say unambiguously, she emerged as the freshman uh, on the House side. Um, I got to give some credit on the Senate side to Jill Carter, because she, while she's not necessarily in agreement with us on every single issue, she has a strong priority in respecting public schools and the, and the fundamental purpose they have in our society, you know, to, to be the thing that helps maintain the ability to self-govern, to kind of bring us, to bring people back and to have somebody come in who is concerned and committed. Like that's a key issue for her. It has made a difference in the conversation. I mean, you could kind of see, you know, when they were negotiating at the last week of session, trying to figure out something, they had to come to terms with the fact that she's there and she was not eager to let, or probably not going to let anything go through if it didn't have her stuff on it. And her stuff is stuff like we've been working with Paula Brown on for two years to you know, make the assessment more worthwhile, to make the accreditation process less punishing for school districts. You know, something that really opens up more freedom for education to not be you know, dominated by standardized testing. And so I got to give her a lot of credit there, I think, um, on the Senate side for really changing the conversation and the dynamic on the education debate. Oh, do you have an idea for your sentence <gasps> with your word bank for, that you have created the last five months? Busy, mm -hmm. dangerous, doubt, time, and hostage. That's your word bank. Those mm -hmm. are your keywords. It's not great, but here's what I got. Without time and deep in doubt, legislators were busy with the dangerous business of holding the process hostage. <gasps> Otto, I think that's great. That's a good recap. Do you think that actually isn't a bad recap of the session, is it? <laughs>